millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is The Secret Library, a podcast about writing and publishing books. I'm Caroline Donahue, a life coach who works with writers, and I'm here to tell you this is your year. It's time to stop waiting and start writing. This episode of the Secret Library podcast is brought to you by Scrivener. Get 20% off the desktop software by using the code SECRET at literatureandlatte.com. Welcome to episode 43. My guest today is Ben Winters, who is the author of nine novels, including most recently the New York Times bestselling Underground Airlines. His other work includes the award winning Last Policeman trilogy. Literally Disturbed, a book of scary poems for kids, the New York Times bestselling parody novel Sense and Sensibility and Sea Monsters, and a novel for young readers, The Secret Life of Mrs. Finkelman. He has also written extensively for the theater and was a 2009-2010 fellow of the Dramatist Guild. His plays for young audiences include The Midnight Ride of Paul Revere, A Tooth Fairy Tale, and Uncle Pirate, and his plays for not young audiences include the 2008 off-Broadway musical Slut and the jukebox musical Breaking Up is Hard to Do, which is produced frequently across the country and around the world. His journalism has appeared in the Chicago Reader, The Nation, In These Times, USA Today, The Huffington Post, and lots of other places. I wanted to have Ben on not only because he's published so many novels, but also because he started the Trump Story Project, which is a project that's on Slate.com. It's a group of writers getting together to write fiction in response to the U.S. election this past November. The story started coming out right after the inauguration. So I was really interested in Ben's decision and his approach to using fiction as a way to address what's happening in politics. So I think you'll really enjoy my conversation with Ben. He's a really thoughtful and interesting guy. So let's go with Ben. Hey, Ben, thanks so much for coming on. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So there's so many reasons why I wanted to have you on, one of which is your recent project, the Trump Story Project, of course. But I can't help but kind of draw a parallel between this tension we're seeing now in the media of alternative facts and then also alternative reality as it's playing out in fiction. Do you have any thoughts yeah, about... You yeah. <laughs> it's like, what is fiction and what is reality? What is going on there? I mean, look, like, what's the, whose quote is it who said that uh, fiction is the lie that tells the truth? I forget who said that, but it's a great quote. It and I think there's always been like this really interesting tension within fiction of like, you know, just sort of thinking about to what extent is what you're writing intended to um, be mimetic, you know, and what in, in, in reflect reality and sort of create a feeling of the real. And to what extent is it intended to be self-consciously imaginative and showing a world that is obviously not so, you know, and like sometimes you read a book and you go, oh, God, it felt so real. Sometimes you read a book and you're like. Um, it took me to a, a totally unrecognizable universe. And those are both really, they're just like different ways of enjoying literature. You know, like you get a very different feeling reading The Metamorphosis than you do reading 
oh, I don't know, like uh, Madame Bovary, you know, which is intended right. to feel immersive and feel like you're entering into somebody's life in a way that the metamorphosis is it's intended to feel creepily realistic, but 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 on the face of it, it's a fable, you know? So like, there's always been this really interesting fiction where it's like, is it real, is it not real? And now we are in this political and cultural moment where like, you can no longer take at face value what we are being told is the truth from the centers of power. There's all kinds of interesting relationships, I think, between those two things, part of which uh, was the inspiration for this this set of short stories that I did um, or that I you know, kind of solicited and curated and edited whatever for Slate. Where are we in reality here? You know, and is fiction, can fiction even keep up with how weird reality has become? It is so strange. Yeah, I know. And in reading the stories, which range from narrative to an application to is it Trump points the, or their Patriot points? Patriot, Patriot points. And I mean, was I was story by um, Lauren. Bwicks. Yeah. Yeah. She's a genius. She's a delight. And, um, you know, it's funny because I basically, you know, I, I, I re- reached out to all these authors and I said, look, here's the idea. I want you to do something that is set during the Trump administration, either set in America or set somewhere in the world. And I wanted to try to give a broad range of voices and a broad range of you know, the kinds of writers I was reaching out to. And I wanted to like, see where different people took it. And Lauren basically created an application form for something called Patriot Points. And it was, you know, it was, it's a high satire piece about the way that um, nationalism, well, I won't, you know, it's hard to speak for someone else, but I think that Lauren was noting the ways that hyper-nationalism has sort of hijacked traditional Republican politics. With the rise of Trump, suddenly what it means to be conservative isn't just small government, anti-tax, uh, local control, the sort of traditional definitions of con- of conservatism, but it's become this hyper nationalist America first thing, which is it, it's it's not new, but it's the extent to which it has overtaken the Republican Party and now national politics is astonishing. You know, so yes, there's all yeah. sort of different ways that people have interpreted what I asked them to think about for the for the piece. Yeah, that one was like it made me laugh out loud and then also feel a little queasy at the same time. Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah. Which is like, I think has been part of the way that we, or many of us have been dealing with the world that we're suddenly living in is this strange combination of horrifying, dread inspiring, surreal. And then occasionally it is, it feels so funny. It it feels so impossible and so preposterous. Some of the things that we're witnessing that you almost feel like you have to laugh. It's absurd. I mean, it would be a lot funnier if it weren't real. Oh yeah. Absolutely. So how fast did you come up with this idea and then execute it? Because it was already starting to go out in January. So was it like the moment of the election that you were like, I must do something? Yeah, sort of. I mean, the morning after, as I think we all woke up in this new world. And I remember the first thing I did when I woke up was not check my phone. Because I had gone to sleep, you know, where it was basically over, but there were still these slim threads of hope. And I woke up and I wasn't ready to get that final, you know, to see that final set of, of news notifications. Then my my initial set of reactions was I started Googling California secession. <laughs> I, I was and I was like, and I, I know I wasn't the only one because there was then there was a slate of, there was a bunch of news articles about, because um, there were a couple of movements that had already existed that suddenly picked up a lot of steam. So I was like, no, that's crazy. But I, I, um, I guess one of the reactions I had that I think a lot of writers and a lot of artists of all kinds had was, an intense need to do something about this in the sense of create something. And like part of the way that writers process things that are going on in their lives and things that are going on in the world around them is to write about it. That's like, you know, definitional. That's what makes you a writer. So I reached out to Slate and I said, look, what if we do a set of short stories 
all of which are set during the Trump years as a way of, you know, both for the writers to, to, to process, but also to help readers to think about the ways that the world is about to change and the ways that we as, you know, people who are about to be in that world uh, might conceive of, of pushing back or accommodating or um, refusing to accommodate the changes that are to come. And as I think I wrote in the introduction to the piece, like fiction has this special power to galvanize, to warn, and to prophecy. So I reached out to Slate. They they liked the idea. So this was literally, I mean, it was a few days after the election. It was it was in it was in mid-November at the latest. And then I started soliciting stories. I, I reached out to a lot of authors I know. I I made bold to contact some authors I don't know, and I started to put together a portfolio. And really, yeah, as you noted, like I was getting stories back by the end of the year, and I was turning them over to Slate to publish by I think the first one went up the week of the inauguration. Yeah. It was important yeah. to me that we, we, we just push this stuff out there. I think it's, uh, it's, it's, an, it's a, a scary time and it's a sort of an exciting time. And uh, people are obviously really interested in this, as they should be. Yeah. It's, if, if nothing else, everybody knows it's significant, this time period. It feels in a way that, it, to me at least, you know, it feels like an unprecedentedly historic time in my lifetime. Like I never, I, and I think that, you know, we live through ages in American history that have this sense of like, something is really happening right now. Something that will define what it means to be an American for the next generation. And certainly this is one of those times. There is a distinct feeling of beyond what we have transitioned from one kind of administration to another. We've transitioned from democratic to Republican control. It feels as though we are at a turning point in the history of liberal democracy. And I know that, you know, I might look back a year from now or five, five years from now and be, and say, well, that, that was being overwrought and hysterical. And God, I hope that that's true. You know, yeah, like exactly that it turns out that this was all a hue and cry about nothing. And this, and this period passed, but already Already we are seeing significant changes in the way that this country is perceived in the world, the way that this country interacts with its citizens of color and with um, LGBT citizens and with citizens who are, you know, with people who came into this country without papers. There has been a, a, a sea change already on the level of policy and also just in the level of perception that is will not be so easily undone or rolled back. No, I agree. I mean, and this issue on some level, maybe not directed at Trump, has clearly been percolating for you for a while with Underground Airlines. In some ways, that coming out last year, but before the election. Yeah. I think it's like, oh, yeah, that's great timing. But it's like when you started writing that and had that idea, you had no idea what the timing was going to be when it came out. It's, it's, it's really crazy because I wrote that novel as a, a, a response to and a way of processing the ongoing horror of police violence against African-American communities and the kind of the, the ways that our country has um, refused to over many generations fully grapple with the legacy of slavery and having been having been born as a slave state. Right. And like it was a it was my way. Um, it, it was a it was a way of using the, the genres of mystery fiction and, and science fiction to think about racialized violence and racial uh, inequality uh, in America. And it, it and like. And then it, and then it got worse, you know, it's like, and and it was sort of like, and and I was gratified that a lot of readers of the book and reviewers noted that, you know, they said when the book came out, which is in the summer, they said, well, it it is disturbing how many, in how many ways the world that winters, blah, 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 creates, um, mirrors the real world that we live in, which was definitely part of the point, right. To show that we, in so many ways are living with 
institutions and attitudes that come right out of slavery, even still today in 2016. And then suddenly it's 2017, and the attorney general is Jeff Sessions, who has spent a career agitating against civil rights and trying to suppress uh, black votes. And like, there was so much promise uh, when President Obama was elected that we had turned a corner in terms of all of these issues. And suddenly it seems like not only have we undone that that progress, but we have, we have gone back decades. And so it is. It's like, oh, yeah, great. Good timing for me in terms of the relevance of my book. But but how awful, you know, yeah. um, how awful yeah. that that um, this is the direction that we have moved in as a country. Definitely. It's just interesting how on some level an issue that you're chewing on and clearly has been significant, although I think it's important for people to know who have not read the book, the premise of the book is what would be the case if the Civil War never happened? And what happened to the country if that happened? It's like these turning points, moments in history. And now we're at another one. You know, I can only imagine the yeah. book you're going to come up with next. Well, please do and send me a note. Then I can... <laughs> that was the, you know, an alternate history is definitely a, uh, I didn't invent that genre. You know, it's been around and we've seen some, in American history, there have been some great alternate history novels written. Uh, you know, there have been ones where the Civil War was won by the South. There have been multiple where, the, you know, the U.S. lost or the, the Allies lost in World War II. And the whole idea of the genre is that history takes when, when in reality we took a step to the left in the novel, we, we took a step to the right, and now we see what happens because of that. And yeah, that was the idea of my book. Let's imagine that the Civil War was never fought. Let's imagine that Lincoln was assassinated before he could take office. Slavery was never abolished under federal law. There's still four southern states uh, in which slavery is legal in 2016. That was the, the premise. And like that's part, of, I think, of where the Trump story project came from, is that I was so struck after the election by this sense of, my God, it's like we've entered into an alternate history. It's like I'm a, I'm a novelist 100 years in the future looking back and going, what if what if Hillary had lost? Yeah. What if Donald Trump had yeah. become president? Um, wh- how, what would our country be like? You know, it's, it's, it felt hard to, to conceive of in the same way that it was a really sort of compelling project as a fiction writer to try to conceive of what would it be like if slavery had never been abolished. And down to the sort of details of like the Comey letter, you know, which felt like the, the, the FBI releasing that letter a week before the election, it felt like exactly the sort of thing that a fiction writer would conjure up to send history jumping off the tracks. Like, you can't believe it's real. No. And here we are. So how did you get to this point if we can like dial back and take the larger view? Because you have written a number of different genres. I mean, beginning with Sense and Sensibility and Sea Monsters, which is a whole different kind of alternative world, and then writing an award-winning mystery series, and then into Underground Railroad. So how did your writing life begin? Can you take us through how this all happened? My, the whole, how it all happened, meaning my whole career? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, just like, what was your initial impulse in writing? And, and how did you find yourself navigating these different genres? Sure. I mean, um, boy. I know, that's a big uh, question. Sorry. No, it's great. First, the earth cooled. That's from um, <laughs> that's uh, from airplane. Yep. First, the earth cooled. It's funny because I guess yeah, my first, my big break really as a novelist was Sense and Sensibility and Sea Monsters, which is ludicrous. Um, I mean, it's literally ludicrous. The idea of the joke of the book is a joke, right? Um, and basically, the way that happened is I had done some small nonfiction stuff for Cork Books, which is this wonderful publisher in Philadelphia. They're mostly you know they they were first known 
for the worst case scenario survival guide books. And then so they were they had, they had and have a sort of specialty in sort of irreverent nonfiction. So I'd done a bunch of small books for them. Then they had this huge hit with Pride and Prejudice and Zombies by Seth Graham Smith. They, so they wanted to do a sequel right away. And Seth was immediately busy with other stuff. So they were sort of like, who do we know who will deliver this on time? Basically, who will do a fine job and will deliver this on time? Uh, let's call Ben Winters, basically. So they called me and they said, do you want to write a book called Sense and Sensibility and Sea Monsters? And I said, sure. <laughs> and they said, we'll pay you, you know, we'll pay you. And I was like, I don't care what you'll pay me. I'll do it. Uh, so because it was just like this extraordinary piece of good fortune, you know, and I, which isn't to say like I had I had a good relationship with them. They knew me as someone who was good on a deadline and was had a good sense of humor. And then I did that book to the very best of my ability. And that sort of launched my career as a novelist in this insane way, because that book was a New York Times bestseller, which it was going to be no matter who wrote it. You know what I mean? But it, it fell to me because I was the guy who caught the ball. And now you get to be a New York Times bestseller for the rest of your life. But that's right. You've done that's it with right. your own book since then. I feel good about that. That Underground Airlines did make the list because now I because I've always felt with, with Sea Monsters, although I was very proud of that book, that the Times bestseller kind of came with an asterisk, you know, because it was it wasn't the book was a work for hire. Although, as I say, I love it. I'm very proud of it. But it wasn't my book from conception. And it is this kind of very high parody thing. So but what happened was that I then I developed a relationship with Quirk Books. And, and I got to a point where I was pitching them my own ideas. And that's where I came to The Last Policeman, which was the first of a trilogy of detective novels that sort of became a, um, a meditation. You know, so those novels are about a, a, a cop who is persisting in solving crimes and solving murders, even though the world is doomed. There's an asteroid that's going to hit the earth in about a year, 10 months. So things are sort of slowly falling apart around him, but he is keeping his head down and doing his work. That novel and its two sequels sort of cemented for me what it is I really want to do as an author, which is to use the kind of the traditions of mystery fiction and the traditions of science fiction to, to get into larger issues about like whatever you want to call it, the human condition, society, our responsibilities to each other, big questions. Yeah, I can't think of a better metaphor for those of us who don't feel that good about the uh, current administration than an asteroid is about to hit the earth and people are just trying to get on with it at the same time. That's right. I encourage you to look it up, actually, after the election. Uh, Der Spiegel, the German news weekly, their cover was of a giant Donald Trump-shaped asteroid hurtling toward the planet. Oh, good Lord. Yeah. Just sent numerous people given my history with asteroids but yes it does it does and and what's what's interesting caroline is that like those books the policeman books were very were a challenge and they were uh, i really loved writing them but it was a lot of time grappling with the fact of death because that became the sort of overarching metaphor of the novels like we're all going to die one day so how do you how do you order your life you know given the fact that an asteroid is coming for all of us one way or another um what what's important but then after i was done with those books i turned to underground airlines which was very much a novel about anti-black racism and about the way that um, racist structures perpetuate themselves. And it was a challenge um, to, to sort of grapple with all the ways that society uh, is oppressive toward people of color and also to grapple with the ways that I, as a white person, have benefited from those things. You know what I mean? Like, like it or not, we as white people are the beneficiaries of, of racism. Racism is not a one-way thing that keeps people down. It also keeps people up. So uh, it was an intense writing experience. And what I said afterward, or what I have said is like between the two of them, like the contemplation of death and the contemplation of racism, racism is much worse because death we have no choice about. You know, death is going to happen. Racism is something that we as individuals, like it or not, realizing it or not, are making choices every day that enable or, um, you know, allow for racist systems to perpetuate themselves. 
So I know this is all very off topic, but like it's it's interesting to me. Like the the like, and this is again, it goes sort of circles back to the story project. But like, fiction allows for us to think about all these things in a way that it is often difficult to think about them in a sort of straight ahead fashion. The fiction allows a kind of on ramp into places we don't always uh, we don't always find it easy to go. So how did you get inside? that experience as a writer coming from the perspective of like a white man stepping inside of a person of color and looking at you know an alternative universe like what was your process of of getting into that there is a long history unfortunately of white authors writing black characters or writing about um black people in ways that are gross um whether sort of stereotypical or condescending. And so it was very important to me to not be one of those authors. So, you know, there was a, there was a, a bunch of different strategies that I employed beyond the usual process of writing. Like I tried to be extremely well read on my subject. So I did read, I read a ton of fiction of sort of classics of African American history and slave narratives and contemporary black authors, everything from Octavia Butler to who's the guy who wrote the sellout, uh, Paul Beatty. Oh, yeah. I love that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and of course I read, uh, there was a, like I've read a lot of nonfiction. Um, there's a long article by ta Coates in the Atlantic about reparations that came out right as I was really getting into this novel. That was incredibly eye opening to me. Um, I read Tony Morrison. I read, I mean, I, I, I read, Oh, the uh, invisible man, mm-hmm. um, which I read, read, uh, you know, so I, I tried to, um, And of course, it's impossible. I will never be an African-American. I will never experience what it is like to walk down the street as a black person. I'll never experience what it's like to be pulled over and the flashlight shown in my eyes because I'm black. I'll never experience that that tension and stress of um, being worried about my children because they are black when I send them out into the world. But all that I could do was to talk to as many people as I could, was to be as alive to the political moment as I could, to read as much as I could about these um, incidents from Trayvon Martin to, uh, to Michael Brown, to Sandra Bland, to um, sort of uh, to be a conscious citizen of my world and, and funnel all that as much as I could into the creation of my character and, and of his world. And like, you get to a certain point, hopefully, when you're writing a book, whatever book it is, where you you understand the character and the world to a point where the book sort of takes on a life of its own. And once I got to that point, I I, I, I had to let the research go a little bit and just and see where the character took me. And like I I guess it, it wasn't easy, and I leave it to readers to judge, you know, how sort of quote accurate it feels. Although of course it can never be wholly accurate because it is an imagined world; it's an alternate reality. But um. And like I said, I don't think it will ever be possible for me as a white person to sort of fully capture what it is like to live as a black person in this world or any other world. But I do think that we as white people have a responsibility to be engaged with these issues. And for me as an author, that translated into a sense that it is my responsibility to not just write books about white people, to sort of live in this world and sort of force myself and ask my readers to be engaged with these issues in a way they might not otherwise be. Absolutely. I think it's making me think as you're talking about, I recently saw Zadie Smith speak about her experience. God, she's amazing. But talking about, you know, the tension between the idea of appropriation and writing characters who come from different experiences. And she was talking about the fact that she's like, fundamentally, I'm just curious about what it's like to be somebody else, like an actor. Like I want to step inside that experience and know what it's like. And to me, I agreed with her. And I think that 
doing it responsibly and really investing in it is is an action of you know trying to expand empathy, which is something that reading is supposed to encourage. Reading and writing, yeah. I, I agree with you, and I do, but and I do. I think, and this is something I've obviously spent a lot of time thinking about, um, both in the process of writing this book and certainly after it came out, because I have, I have ended up having um, a lot of conversations with a lot of people about this, that there is that inherent tension between, of course you should write characters who aren't like you. In fact, how could you possibly write a good book without doing that? There would be no antagonists in fiction or no, um, you know, it would all be people's, you know, when I was 12, I went to the lake and my parents yelled at each other, you know, like we <laughs> have to write books and tell stories that go beyond who we are and what we've experienced. It is the whole point of fiction. But on the other hand, when we are writing characters who are not like us, we have a responsibility to um, to do it thoughtfully and sensitively and like with as much empathy and compassion and intelligence and knowledge as we can, you know? So that you're not creating three-dimensional empathetic characters who are like you and two-dimensional sort of um, stereotypical or easy characters who aren't like you. So like the way I formulate it is like, because like this can't, you know, I'm sure that you and your listeners remember when Lionel Shriver gave her sort of infamous keynote speech at, I forget where it was, some writer's festival. And she was talking about this and she came out wearing a sombrero and she gave a sort of absolutist, a writer should be able to write whatever they want. And if people are upset by that, well, too bad for them. And it was, it was very provocative and people are very upset by it. And like, as they should have been, because it was obnoxious, but, but Lionel Shriver is a great writer. And like, I think that the formulation should be, yes, write whatever you want. No, don't be an asshole about it. You know, like, That's a fair be aware of those, right? It should be. That's my rule. Like, you should write whatever you want. Absolutely. But you may not be an asshole about it. You must be thoughtful and sensitive and respectful and, and do your research and know what you're talking about and be prepared to have the conversations where people say, why would you write about these people you don't know anything about? Be prepared by saying, well, I learned as much as I could. I talked to as many people as I could. I did the homework. I, I have never written a character who was um, transgender, for example. But I'm not going to sit here and say I never will. But I will. I promise you, if I do, I will know as much as I possibly can about what it's like to live that experience before I, before I present that character to the world. I think it also calls into question what the purpose of fiction is. Because as we're having this conversation today, I think that some people think it's like they judge you on doing something perfectly. Like, did you handle this situation perfectly? But it's impossible to do it perfectly. So did it at least inspire sensitive and thoughtful conversation that made the world better? I mean, is that a decent role for fiction? I like that. I mean, nothing is perfect, right? No. We're never going to hit the mark. Although there are books where you're going to go, well, that was perfect, you know, but I like, I don't, I don't claim to have written any of them and I don't think I ever will. But I do, I agree with you that the goal should be that you approach the work with intelligence and empathy. You ask your reader to approach the work with intelligence and empathy and you inspire complex and interesting conversations that advance like the sort of common human conversation about the world that we live in. What a great goal that is. God, yeah. Like there's something really creepy about the idea. I'm gonna, let me just formulate this whole thought. This is sort of like the corollary or the in-depth version of write what you want, but don't be an asshole. Yeah. Like, something really scary about the idea of white people writing fiction about white people for other white people to read whilst meanwhile, black people are writing fiction about black characters for black people to read. That is not a literary world that any of us want to live in. But at the same time, black authors um, and readers have a point when they say there is not enough fiction 
about diverse characters that is written by people of color. You know, we are not getting enough opportunities to tell our own stories. Like that is a fair and important point. So both things have to be true. We have to live in a literary world where people are allowed to write what they want. We also have to um, keep pushing for a world where there's more room for more voices. Like I think both things can be true and, and have to be. And speaking on a personal note, when this novel came out and I, like I had given a lot of thought in the writing of the novel to the first set of questions you asked me about, like, what is it like to write a black voice and to write about black characters? Like I thought about it a ton and I was sort of prepared to, to talk about it. I had not given enough thought because I was naive and probably dumb to like the, 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 the related issue of why are, why is a white person who's writing this book getting the press attention and the interest that black authors often don't get, you know, which is like, it was it was like a difficult but really important and meaningful moment for me to have my understanding of these issues expanded yet further by the publication of the book that I'd written about these issues, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Let's take a moment to pause and talk about our sponsor, Scrivener. It's important to note that Scrivener is not just a great tool for writing your own pieces, but it's also a great tool for gathering an anthology like Ben has done in terms of editing, housing projects together, putting a whole bunch of stories in the same place. You can put sections of a piece together in one project in a binder inside of Scrivener and then export it as one file. You can look at it all together, look at it separately, reorder it, all of the kinds of things you'd want to do when working on an anthology, either for print or the web. So I recommend Scrivener if you're thinking of connecting a bunch of stories together or working collaboratively like Ben has done. You can check it out at literatureandlatte.com and use the code secret to get 20% off the desktop software. Now let's get back to Ben. The critical attention was very good, obviously, but how was it for people on the ground in terms of commenting on the book and did you deal with trolls? And I'm curious about that with the, the Trump story project as well. How has the popular response been? I got no trolls that I know of. If you define troll as someone who like, and by the way, I'm off Twitter and I was on Twitter at the time. When did I get off? A few months ago, I got off. And that's a whole other side thing um, having to do with like the politics of Twitter. But yes, thank you. The critical attention was very positive um, and, and sort of took the book for what I was hoping it would be, which was a uh, both a a solid mystery story and um, a sort of a relevant political statement about the world that we live in and how little we have um, grappled with the legacy of slavery. I didn't get any trolls in the sense that I didn't get, I didn't get people who were just like straight up being like, what is wrong with you? Or like, well, I don't know how you define a troll. I'm thinking just like nasty anonymous, like what do you think you're doing kind of comments? Yeah, a very, 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 very little bit of that. There was an article about me in the New York Times, a profile that sort of left out, it basically, it, the, the headline of the article said, you know, an author dares to mix slavery and sci-fi, and people really bristled at that use of the word daring, um, uh, in the sense that, you know, like, what is so daring about a white person uh, publishing a book about uh, the black experience? And so that brought a lot of attention that was not super pleasant, but I think a lot of it was directed more at the times and the sort of, the, the take that the article had. Um, although people then sort of certainly, and fairly, imputed that to, to me into the novel. So there was, a, I, I weathered that a little bit, but it actually like, to me, it was a moment of 
if the point of this book was to expand a conversation or to be part of a conversation about the relationship um, between black America and the larger institutions around it, including publishing, you know, it was like a part, it was, it was another part of that conversation. And so that was like, that was the one aspect of the publication of the book that was like not entirely positive, but only in the sort of personal sense of me feeling like, oh gosh, people aren't getting this. People were going, well, who is this white guy? Who does he think he is basically? But then I, I do think that even, uh, that really didn't have as much to do with the book as it did with the article and the sort of perception of the book and the perception of um, of how I was being sort of, what's the word, like platformed or put out there, you know? Um, oh, and the other thing was that the article didn't mention Octavia Butler, who wrote Kindred, which is a sort of defining book. Yeah, amazing book. Right. And which I had written about before and was on my website as being an important influence on me, but which the author of the Times article didn't mention. And so I think a lot of people are like, does this guy really think he's the first person to ever Uh, use science to take on slavery? Again, like, who does this guy think he is? And like, you know, if I had read that article and I didn't know who I was, I might have felt the same way. So it's tough, you know, but like, boohoo, poor me. Like, you know, like I, a lot of people have gone through a lot worse in this world. And which is sort of part of the point of the book was like white people don't recognize all, you know, don't often don't sufficiently realize the extra um, burdens or indignities that are put upon our black fellow citizens. Like even on Twitter, black people have gone through a lot worse than that. You know, like I I'm, I, I think of Leslie Jones oh, and that whole business. Yes. Like, and so it, which again is part of the whole thing with Twitter. It's like these these seemingly neutral platforms have a way of recreating negative structures that we have in other places in society, you know? Anyway, long, uh, yeah, that was a long answer to your question, but like the, it was, it was like writing the book for me was a very powerful and eye-opening experience because the more that I read about the history of racism in America and the functioning of racism in America, the more I realized um, how deeper and more pernicious the problem was than I had ever realized, in part because I'm white. But then the book coming out and that experience was a sort of a yet further, I guess, deepening of my understanding of all those same issues, you know, as it related to me in particular. So it was quite an experience. I'm sure. And then I think of your story in the Trump Story Project and and how do you feel, I wonder if that's channeling like the anxiety of all writers right now who are attempting to grapple with the truth of somebody who started out as a journalist and it's almost like an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge kind of story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, my story is called, it's called Fifth Avenue and it's basically, it's about a journalist and it takes place in the last few moments of his life as he's waiting to be executed for treason uh, right before the 2020 election. And yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's a, it's a fantasy and it's, it's sort of, um, it's, it's an easy way of me to imagine out what the politics of the next four years are going to be and some of the twists and turns that may occur. Um, and my, my hero is, has, is put himself on what I call the emoluments beat. You know, he's been looking for, for corruption and he has drawn the ire of the president. And yeah, I mean, I think that there is, I'm, I would consider myself lucky because I'm a fiction writer, so I don't feel any responsibility to go out and do journalism. But I think that really what we are seeing right now um, is a real, um, you can feel there's this torrent of investigation going on. I feel like the New York Times and the Washington Post and CNN are like fighting each other, you know, to get these scoops on the Russia story and on the Mar-a-Lago business. And, you know, there's so many things to investigate. It's almost like a, it's high season for investigative journalism, which is great. And I feel like the press is, um, there's all these aspects of civil society that are showing their teeth in the, in the wake of Trump's 
presidency. You know, we have we have the courts, we have people on the streets, we have nonprofits like the ACLU, we you know, or you know, advocacy organizations like the ACLU and um, the Council on uh, Arab Islamic Relations. We have journalism. And so my piece imagines a kind of nightmare scenario where journalists become accused of treason, um, which has never really happened in this country uh, in an organized way. But it's definitely you can see it happening, you know. So it's um, yeah, it's just one of many ways that things could go very wrong. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, and like as I go through these stories, like they all they all sort of go in slightly different directions. But I think they all have in common that that sickening sense of we just don't know what's going to happen here. We just don't know where things are going to go. We don't know. Um, and, you know, and Eden LePecky wrote a story about uh, uh, the overturning of Roe v. Wade and a sort of new America where we're back to the, fi- to the 50s and um, young women having to organize uh, uh, in a ring of, of undercover abortionists. And Jeff Vandermeer, um, who wrote a long, wonderful story oh, yeah, about something called crazy. Trump Land, it's sort of, a, you know, it's like this massive infrastructure project. Um, it starts off as a tribute or in mocking and then becomes a tribute and then sort of decays. Uh, and actually, Nisi Shaw's story, which I think goes up today, um, and Nisi is a, an excellent speculative fiction author, but her story is about the resistance and about the different ways that people might find to um, to organize themselves uh, now and in the future. In a way, it's their, our sort of most hopeful piece. So, yeah, like, um, it's interesting to contemplate. I feel like a lot of people are looking for what is good right now. They're looking for what they can hang their hat on amongst this sense of the country sort of tumbling toward um, points unknown. And I guess for me as a writer, and hopefully for some of these other writers that I reached out to, to do this project, like one thing that feels positive is that it is an opportunity to make art, you know, to, to think artistically about, about where we are. I think it's so important. And I think it, it really speaks to the relevance of the project that you could literally talk about it the day after and then have people write something and have it back to you and have it out, um, have it out this quickly there's so much energy in that. And yeah, it's I think it's beautiful because a lot of people, I mean, myself included, have had moments of like, I would rather just crawl under the bed today. I've been on hold with my, my senator and I'm trying to reach them and it's been busy for hours. You know, all of these things that we're trying to do. But the fact that writing is always something that's there is so yep. important. Yep. What's really funny is that well, because of the turnaround time, like, but, but even like I had writers because things kept changing so quickly and like there's so many things happening, even in the first few days after he was, in, after he was inaugurated, the, the nonsense with the, uh, the size of his crowds and going to the CIA and like this and this and then Flynn resigns. It's like some of the authors whose stories haven't been posted yet are emailing me like, hey, can I just update my story? Like I got one more thing I want to change. Like it's like you can't keep up with this stuff. You know, you, you can't keep up with it. It's bonkers. And I'm actually really excited and interested to see what more uh, long term comes out of this in terms of fiction, you know, because I know that I, in the last few weeks, have totally overturned the novel I was writing because it just feels like this is such an urgent political and cultural moment. It feels impossible to be writing fiction and not thinking about this, about everything that's happening. And I bet that a lot of writers are in a similar place. So I think in the next one thing that we will see in the next, you know, year or two years are some really interesting novels reflecting in different ways, the way that what, what this election means, what the world uh, feels like and what it's going to feel like in the years to come. Yeah, it's amazing. I was talking to someone recently who's who's working on a novel that was supposed to be set this year and has had to change the time oh, by a year because it's like, I can't, this story isn't about that. And I can't, if it was happening now, it would have to be about that. Right. I'll tell you what's really funny. I was at a bookstore yesterday uh, with my daughter just looking for kids books. And I was like, 
stunned to see they had their whole president's display up like this scholastic you know, of fun facts about the presidents and like right there on the cover there's our new president i, I think that was a moment for me that really sticking in this in this despairing way that god this guy really is the president and not only is, the, he's, is he the president now he will always be the president you know he will always have been the president like they can't go back he'll never come out of those books you know like those those fun goofy books that are always around when you're growing up about you know oh william henry harrison was the president for this many days and you know abraham lincoln when he was a kid used to do this like there's going to be stories about trump in those books forever and like that to me is like holy moly you know definitely Oh, that's a good point. Well, it's, it's, I think about there was a thing, um, stories books in Echo Park had this uh, post either on Instagram or, or somewhere that it was like they had all of those goofy Trump books that were kind of jokes during the, uh, you know, the election season. They were like, hey, we're giving these away because we're not going to have to deal with them after this week. And now it's like, oh, yes, we are. Yeah, it's, it's, it's stunning. It really, it's really stunning. It, um, and like, it, that that was what inspired this whole thing for me is like not only did it feel scary and upsetting but it felt and it feels unreal it feels like you can't believe that this is really happening some of the headlines on the newspapers like just today my la times like you know we're going to deport you know the deport fears rise of deportation force like that is not a headline that we, we feel like we should be seeing on an american newspaper and here we are yeah it, there was a point where it felt like I was like, is the onion, has the onion taken over like every major newspaper? Because that's the only explanation I can provide for this is how surreal it feels. Yeah, I know. Yep. So, so you had to bag one novel. Have you come up with another idea that you're now cooking on or are you kind of in limbo at the moment? No, I, it wasn't so much that I bagged it, but there was this kind of, um, and I'll, I'll be able to explain this more at some point, but there was this sort of subplot or internal part of the book I was writing that has now kind of emerged and taken over the whole thing, um, sort of eating, eating it from the inside out. And, and, and I think that the reason that happened is because the internal part had more to do with where we are now. So it, it, the whole thing sort of reimagined itself under my feet, which is a really exciting thing. And I'm trying to figure out now what it's going to be. Well, you'll have to come back and tell us about it once it's, once it's done. I'll be happy to. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I think we, we needed to get into how writing can be, you know, a political act and how it can be part of dealing with this time period. And so I saw your project and I was like, yes, we're, we're going to talk about this. And I'm so glad you were willing to come on and talk about it. And let me say this, writing is always a political act, whether you are writing a political novel or writing a not political at a time when politics is important, that is a political act. And I think that one thing that this, this period in our history is reinforcing for me is that, you know, is that everything is political. The way we choose to live our lives, the way we choose to, um, to, to go about our business, the decisions we make about our families and where we choose to live, like it's a political world. And like, so certainly for those of us who are readers and writers, um, we are making political decisions about the things we choose to read and write. Um, and like, I think a lot of people are realizing that more than they have in the past. Definitely. I think that's definitely true. So I hope that everybody will check out these stories and, and see these uh, takes on what may happen and, and what people have in their imaginations. Because I think it, it does help to externalize it a little bit and read it on the page that's fiction instead of in the newspaper. All right. Well, thank you so much, Ben. It's been great having you. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Secret Library podcast. The show is produced by me, Caroline Donahue, and Frederick Barry McWilliams Jr., my tireless audio engineer. 
To get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, visit carolinedonahue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading.